Hello and welcome to the Cat Maste Chronicles podcast. We have exciting, interesting and powerful stories from pet owners about their projects, businesses and ventures. I'm your host, Michelle Adams, founder of Chatty Cats Care, London's professional cat sitting company. Join me as I dive deep into conversation with pet owners to chat about their individual journeys and of course, their beloved pets. Tune in every Wednesday for a new episode. Hello and welcome to episode 48 of the Cat Mass Day Chronicles podcast. This week we are joined by James Morgan Jones and I'm very excited and intrigued to talk with James to find out more about him as we share lots of commonalities. James is a published author and has a great book series which are psychological thrillers with a supernatural touch. I'm very into psychological and supernatural books and films, so it's going to be great to chat more about this. James has also trained as a professional actor and worked in the theatre for many years, like myself. He's also worked with cats and trained as a feline behaviourist, so I'm absolutely stoked to talk more about this too. So without further ado, thank you so much for joining us today, James. I've already briefly introduced you, but if you could tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself, that would be great. Well, hello. Thank you, Michelle. I'm very pleased to be here and thank you for inviting me on. Um, well, you've given me a very good introduction. I uh, yes, I'm currently c- concentrating on my writing. But yes, many years ago, I, I studied at the Guildhall School of Music and Drama um, as a professional actor, and I did work in the theatre for some years. Um, that trajectory changed after I had quite a serious accident, and I had, in the meantime, developed a great interest in cats and uh, decided to go do something completely mad and go out on a limb and and trained as um, a behaviourist for cats. I did do a bit of dogs as well, but actually it was really concentrating mostly on cats, which was my main interest. And I did that for quite a long time um, and then went back to my first love before anything else, um, even acting, which was writing and which I'd started to mm. do when I was very young, about 12 or 13, actually. Um, and realised that time was ticking on and I needed to concentrate on it if I needed, to, if I was actually going to achieve anything. And so I, um, I'm very lucky. I live in West Wales now and um, there is literally a university about four or five miles down the road. So I was very lucky and it offered an MA course in creative writing. And I decided I don't think you have to do um, any such course, really, to begin writing at all. But I felt that it would be useful for me to give me that environment to work in, to get back into the saddle, as it were, and regain that discipline of writing consistently. So I I did that um, and it went from there. And I've been writing for, for about, I suppose it must be totting up 15 years now. So that's oh. me. thank you I was actually wondering what came first was it the acting the writing the cats so thank you for clearing that up Uh, well no no we can go further no it was the writing um but actually at the same time very early I had it's interesting actually because I had 
almost any everything in the ter- in terms of of pets and even some wild animals i'm afraid to say oh. um when i was uh, that age about 12 13 14 early teenage years except a cat bizarrely oh. um we had a dog i had a pet rabbit i had gerbils a budgie uh tortoises and I even, you know, used to, you know, I wouldn't recommend it now. And they were always released in the end, I hasten to say. But I even had things like, you know, pet frogs and toads and that sort of thing. Um, but as one did in those days. Um, but no, I, I didn't have a cat. But my grandparents who lived next door did. So we weren't entirely catless. And she used to come all the time into our garden and so on. So it was almost like having a cat. Um, so, yeah, the, uh, they they were concurrent, I'd say. And then a bit later, while I was at school, that was when I discovered acting because, um, in, I suppose, about the age of 15 or so, but, you know, it's the usual thing you do school plays. And I suddenly realised, you know, there was something going on here. And, and I had a great English teacher who used to also, also do some of the plays. And uh, she took me aside one day and said, you know, you ought to um you ought to try to take this a bit further and she recommended a local amateur dramatic group um uh, which I, I i hadn't even thought about um but she said you know they're quite good you know they do decent plays and there was another girl at the school who used to go there and uh, so off i went and i that was how it all began and and at that there was a, the chap who ran it i think it was he who if i remember correctly he suggested that at the time there was a Saturday class you could go to at the Guildhall School of Music and Drama. And as uh, I grew up on the borders of Essex and London, that was yeah. perfectly possible for me to do. And I went and did that for for a couple of two years and um, did some great productions, including one at the Players Theatre, which doesn't really exist anymore. But it was a great little theatre where they did music hall uh, underneath the arches in Villiers Street at uh, near embankment station and we even got to do a, a production a, a little something we put together there so that was great a great little training ground and then i auditioned for the college proper and so it that was the sequence really sequence of events um and then and then of course i was immersed in theater for quite some time hmm. yes what was your experience like at guildhall by the way because oh, i know uh, there's quite a few people that have been there yes well um it was wonderful. It was hugely exciting, exhilarating. I had a great time. I was in a year where I felt very comfortable with the with my fellow students. And of course, as you will know, there's really nothing quite like it in terms of a studying environment because mm. it is so intense emotionally and, and you're not, it isn't, at least it wasn't then at all, academic. You were training as a professional actor mm. and and so you were on the go literally from nine in the morning until, and sometimes even slightly earlier, until, um, well, certainly by the time you got into your final year and you were putting on productions, you were working well into the evening um, with rehearsals and so on. And so it was very intense, um, but hugely exciting and exhilarating and liberating, liberating. That's what it was. So, um, yeah, it was, a, it was a fantastic experience. I was very happy there. Yes, liberating is is the perfect word, especially when it comes to the performances. Because when you're yes. on the stage and you're in your element and yes. you're performing, it just feels yes. just amazing. You can't yes. really think of any other feeling. It is liberating, definitely. Yes, yes, it's like flying, isn't it? Really? It is. You, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I had a great time. Oh, good. So after graduating, then you went 
on to work in the theatre for several years, which I'd love yes. to know more about, as I'm also, as I mentioned, from an acting and theatre background. Yes. Well, what I did was mostly, because uh, in those days, repertory was still quite a um, a thing, you know, in regional theatres were very strong, much stronger in that in that way than they are now. Um, and so I, I did quite a bit of regional theatre, a little bit of radio. I love radio, so I quite enjoy these sessions now, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I talk chatting to people like this. It's quite good working into a microphone. But um, it was all, all otherwise all theatre. Um, I did do one production in, uh, I went to Vienna, actually. The Vienna, I don't know if you know of the Vienna English Theatre. Oh. Um, yeah, there's the, well, there was, I presume it's still going. There's a beautiful little theatre in, in Vienna, and it was um, an English theatre, and I uh, did a, um an Irish play by Brian Friel called Lo- Lovers actually um and uh it was that was extraordinary but anyway it, yes in this country I did um various bits of bobs of regional theatre Leicester and Bristol and uh, actually I ended up doing one production you know completely coincidentally on my old stamping ground on on the margins of Essex and London ah. um, uh, uh, at a theatre there uh, which was possibly the my favourite part that I did I think um professionally it was it was an Alan Lakebourne okay which which um was a great experience it's not one that's very well known it, it, he actually wrote it as a farce it's called Taking Steps okay. um and it is uh, um Aikbourne's you know uh, um go uh, doing a farce and of course he does it extremely you know, he does it brilliantly um and the part was great for me it was very um and very instructive actually in terms of later writing because it was um the part I played was a young very nervous and unconfident solicitor and was always stuttering and getting his words out wrong and found, found it very difficult to communicate with other people um and I realized doing this how important the writing was and how precise and exact it was Mm. and how vital it was to reproduce that in a performance because if I had just thought oh well you know he's stuttering uh, I'll just stutter and vaguely you know say what you know it does in the lines that I realized very quickly that would not do at all because it would just be a mush and you would lose the audience's connection you they would you know concentration would go and I realized it had to be learned exactly as written each broken word every interrupted sentence had to be as written and you had to make it sound natural of course and that was very instructive because I think all good writing is very precise and so I I learned a lot from that and also about um timing and uh in comedy of course is so important so anyway yeah that was a that was a great show to do that's really interesting. And I think reading scripts is definitely a, a good way to to look at writing because it's, yes. it's it's very different to how you would kind of, well, read a book and how a, a, a usual book is presented, you know, yes. how a nonfiction book is presented because you have to think more about the characters and, and the words and the lines and you kind of envision um how that would play out in in real life or on stage so yes yes sort of connection yes and the thing about scripts is of course the trick 
writing dialogue is that you it needs to sound perfectly natural and believable as an exchange between human beings but actually it can't be entirely natural because otherwise you'd get a lot of fluff and um trivia and ums and ahs and which would of course lose the audience in about less than a minute I should think so again it's this precision which somehow um has to be made to sound totally natural which is um a great discipline for the playwright, of course, or the scriptwriter, and also for the actors delivering it. You know, it, it, you look at good actors on television and uh, or anywhere in the theatre, and it sounds as though they're just chatting to you. Absolutely. Um, but it it is a great skill, actually, to make it sound as though it's entirely natural, when it never can be quite natural. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a technique and a skill, I think. Sort of like method acting, I guess. Well... Uh, yes I mean I I never studied that so I don't know I mean method acting was very much into you know actually experiencing what you were supposed to be portraying Um, and people you know sort of putting themselves through exhaustive training (laughs) regimes and um, oh you know whatever and I'm not you know there was you know dear uh, John Gilgood years and years ago said something or you know or was it Laurence Olivier I can't remember one of the two you know said oh darling what about acting you know (laughs) and I mean just pretending and having that imagination to enjoy put yourself in that situation and take you a very long way I don't think you necessarily need to to actually become or replicate I mean you know you've had extraordinary things of actors you know losing several stone in weight you know in order to do such and such a thing and then you think I'm sure this isn't actually good for them really and they'll probably pay for it later in life but um you know anyway you know I think imagination is a very powerful tool oh, yes. and can take you a long way both in writing and acting or any creative endeavor and there's a there's a, a lot to be said for it it shouldn't be underestimated oh absolutely absolutely I couldn't agree with you more um after this you actually retrained as a feline behaviorist so why did you decide <coughs> to revisit well, career options Yes, well, as I, as I said earlier, I was involved in this quite serious accident at the time, which was a car accident, and I was um, uh, in the back. I wasn't driving. I was uh, actually in the back seat sitting behind the driver, and I was a classic case of um, it was just before the law changed and you had to wear back seat belts. Ah. So um, I was a classic case of why you should wear a back seat belt okay. because the car the car left the road ploughed at, at some speed into a uh, a lamppost actually oh, and so of course the impact of that sent me hurtling forward and I I collided with the side of the, of the car you know the that that um, metal bit of frame between the two windows I think it would have been and so uh, the right side of my face was completely um, hammered in oh my gosh uh, and uh at the time, of course, this was quite traumatic, as you can imagine. And I had to have operations that went on for a good two years. So, of course, it completely threw me off the roundabout, really. Mm. And I wouldn't say that I was forced to change career. That wouldn't be true. Okay. W- what happened was I my mindset changed. Okay. I found that I no longer because I think I think you will know this, Michelle. If you if you're going to survive in acting, you have to be completely obsessed with it, and you have to need to do it. Yeah, it's a it's a tough thing to stay afloat in, and I think you really really need 
that concentration and that almost obsessive drive. Um, And I found that that had changed and I no longer, although I still loved it, I no longer felt that 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 drive, you know, that um, need to do it. So um, I, I, in the end, I decided that that, you know, that that was too important to loss, really. Mm -hmm. So I... I decided to, you know, over this time when I had been um, not able to work, I, um, we had cats at the time and I um, <clears throat> developed this great interest in them. And there was one particular incident, which if we want to talk about the cats later, I'll tell you about, mm-hmm. um, which um, did, brought on that interest quite rapidly. And I decided in the end that I, you know, I got some compensation from the accident and so on. So I decided to, um, I would eventually retrain and uh, and do this mad thing of becoming a, a feline behaviour <laughs> counsellor. <laughs> so that's what I did. So and, it- I mo- and I moved, I moved, I moved from London and came to West Wales. My mother was from Wales, although not actually from this part. But um, I, so I did, you know, I, I completely uprooted and my life absolutely changed forever. And uh I came to West Wales to a very beautiful place and a very um, atmospheric little house and and off I went. And so that's where I've been ever since. Wow. Sometimes you just need a new change um, to start a new beginning and, and yes. a career yes. and path in life. Yes. 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 And I, although it was a trauma, it just, it seemed that it, this was, part of the point of it I think (laughs) I I had I had to start again yeah that's what I did yeah so I I did that for some years um working as a feline behavior counselor um and uh eventually as I say got to grips with the writing so I decided that I needed to concentrate on that but I'm you know happy to talk about the feline work more if you'd like yes I would love to know a little bit more what was it like um you know, working as a feline behaviourist counsellor? Um, it was uh, really, really interesting because you okay. began to understand the interaction between people and their animals mm. um, quite intimately and intricately. Um, and sometimes this can be such an intense relationship that it can almost create problems and that's sometimes only sometimes what I found myself dealing with and I'm pretty sure any behaviorist would know what I was talking about mm. that it, beca- it can almost become over dependent and sometimes and you would find yourself treading on quite uh, on eggshells almost trying to deal with the situation which was quite delicate but I mean that was only occasionally a lot of the time there were yes. people who just got themselves into a bit of a muddle and didn't understand certain aspects of, of what the cat needs um, in order to lead, lead a happy life and this could be quite simple things like um, you know uh, providing a litter tray even something as simple as that or positioning it in a place in the dwelling where the cat felt comfortable using it or a cat that had gone outside and toileted all its life why is my cat suddenly um not not going out and it's it's relieving himself or herself in the house i don't mm. understand and you would have to explain that the cat was maybe 16 or 17 years old and becoming a bit infirm and 
you know, things change and you need to understand that the cat no, is no longer confident and or even comfortable going out in all sorts of weathers. And so, you know, it can be something as simple as that. Mm. But sometimes much more complicated emotion and issues would, would um, arise and uh, um, then it could all be, you know, you really had to work a bit harder and um, and make, uh, try to gently lead people into an understanding that they needed to modify the way that they interacted with the cat and provided for the cat um, in order to get any sort of improvement in the situation, whatever it might be. Um, so, yeah, you can sometimes find yourself in delicate te- territory for sure. Absolutely. And I th- just thinking about it and listening to you, I'm thinking maybe we are or, you know, we're, we're great for these kind of roles because we're we're both from, you know, acting backgrounds. We're used to observing and yes. listening and watching. And, you know, when you were talking about this, it it, it kind of made me reflect on my own role. So I, I'm also a nanny and I work in households with, children's, uh, mm. with children and families. And sometimes, like, you know, you mentioned, it does get quite intense sometimes. Yes. It becomes very personal. You're very involved. And yes. um, the, the family become very dependent on you. So it is, you know, quite... Um, yes quite a serious role and and you know you have to take it very seriously and be professional um, yes. but at the same time you have to be very human and understand needs and 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 people and and you know you need to be able to advise people the best way you can so yes. um and in fact in your role I would say that's been true for you know heaven knows how long you know into going way back into where where you know it was you know, the upper the, the the wealthier classes had nannies all the time and yeah. became very dependent on them in exactly the same way yeah. 100, 100 or 150 years ago as as you talk about now i i think with the animals this is a much more recent development yes. where anim, where animals have become almost can become um you know, as, as i think we all know they can in, in a way become a kind of child substitute or not necessarily a child but just an emotional prop in yeah. a way that that never used to um ne- never used to be the case i think people would would have found this as a very strange idea yes. uh, by by and large um but it has become and also because i think it's um, and this will affect the situation with children too uh, because our society has become so ultra protective mm. now um therefore um emotional connection does tend to become rather more intense because you're you are literally um ensconced to, together far more than used to be the case yeah because i mean you know years ago i mean i had enormous freedom as a child which doesn't <laughs> in a way that doesn't really exist anymore we used to just go off and and troll about and do all sorts of things which i suppose weren't terribly safe when i look back but you know you did it and your parents didn't didn't you know weren't climbing the walls and they didn't question you and 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 so there was a release of energy and uh, a sort of creative energy if you like which now becomes more trapped in in within a household when we um don't have as much freedom or you just aren't able to have that freedom that we used to have and and exactly the same happens with animals as well there's an over dependence to some degree absolutely 
Have you mm. ever had to deal with any difficult situations or, um, you know, cat behavior problems? Um, and how have you dealt with them? I, I would say that I had encountered some difficult situations. And to be honest with you, Michelle, the worst ones really were that it did stem from the, the overdependence that okay. I've just talked about. Um, and if I'm going to be absolutely honest, and again, this is this is only in a small, you know, a minority of cases, but if you if you are asking about difficult situations, I sometimes found myself in a situation where I became aware that the owner, the owner, uh, him or herself, was actually in need of some kind of professional help. I see. Yes, and had emotional uh, issues that needed to be resolved, and that's quite difficult because it's it, um, any perceived criticism mm. um, in in that you might make, not not meaning it as a criticism, but any anything that might be perceived as a criticism in the way that the animal was being treated was, um, you know, was very difficult for that person to to accept even if you were saying look you may need to modify such such a thing it would be very much seen as a personal attack which of course was not the intention and so when you're dealing with that it's very difficult and you can only achieve a limited amount of success because at the bottom of it is another um, problem altogether Mm -hmm. which you simply aren't qualified to deal with actually and however sensitive and delicate you might be it isn't going to actually address that underlying problem. Exactly. And, and that's quite difficult. And you, all that you can do in the end is make certain tentative modifications and hope that the situation might be alleviated to some degree. You, you know, you, can, you have to accept that, uh, that success is going to be limited. Yes. yes. Really. You can, you can only do, you know, your best and, and advise yes. what's within your means. Um, yes, hope that you know that the person or people are able to seek um other help and assistance. yes yes although of course you can't even for a moment suggest that you have yes, to let course. you have to um you have to hope that they you know um will do at some point but those were you know those were not the usual of course uh, things that you dealt with but it did happen on a, you know a small number of occasions certainly of course um, so many people have decided to become cat owners during lockdown, and I've actually yes. noticed this. Um, mm. What are some of the do's and don'ts for first-time cat owners that you might be able to advise? Well, this is a huge issue, isn't it? And uh, honestly, this has come to light, um, come to my notice, literally in the last couple of weeks, actually, um, yes. with um, somebody I knew whose dog died. And it's certainly, I mean, I need to explain to you, in, in Wales, yeah, there's always been an issue of, you know, more pets than there are owners. Okay. Uh, um, and she, her dog died and she's always taken on rescue dogs and um, she could not find a rescue dog for love nor money. I mean, it's true. In Wales, that's extraordinary. Mm. quite extraordinary um and in the end so you know somebody knocked on a door and said oh I hear you I mean there's a lady down the road who's had to go into a nursing home and she has a dog would you be interested you know blah blah so she that she she has taken on this lovely dog now but um 
Yes, this is extraordinary, isn't it? That suddenly there has, has been apparently been this great uptake of pets. And, but it's also a bit worrying because you can't help but feel there may be a backlash um, or a swing yes. back, as it were. And a lot of these animals, and in fact, again, recently I was walking through town and there's a place which before... Uh, you know, it, it's sort of in an alleyway and there's a there's a, an electricity substation behind railings and cats have been dumped there before. And um, suddenly, you know, I was walking past the other day and suddenly I saw this cat looking absolutely bereft, <laughs> forlorn. And I realised that, and very young, just about the right age for a cat that would have been taken on last year. Yeah. And suddenly I realised that this cat didn't know where it was and you know you can imagine what you know I I didn't leave her there you'll be glad to know okay I, I she was she was taken to a place of safety but um I just it had all the hallmarks of a cat that suddenly had become an inconvenience yeah so going back to your original question um do's and don'ts what you absolutely must do and know is that this old thing of you know which was usually applied to dogs dog is for life not just for christmas mm. absolutely applies they are a huge responsibility you have to see imagine your life um making um space for that cat uh, cat in your life for possibly 15 or 20 years okay. and that means pr providing for it when you want to go away um you need to know um that you can afford it sometimes illness strikes and it's not it, you know yes you can have insurance of course if you've just got one cat and that's a very good idea i think yeah, yeah. um if you do that because veterinary fees can be very very high um depending on what the problem is that's all and you know so you have to factor all this in and also your own lifestyle why are you taking on this cat yes you may be feeling a bit feeling frustrated and lonely, as of course a lot of people have done over the last eighteen months. But uh, at some point, that's going to end. What will your life be? Are you the sort of person who has a lifestyle where you're out from eight o'clock in the morning till seven o'clock at night, and then you might like to have a bit of a social life? Mm. Um, and your hours of, or you may be in a job where your hours are very, very irregular. This doesn't sit very well with pet owning, actually. Yes. Pets, both cat, cats, just as much as dogs. Yes, you know, they are more capable of dealing with solitude than dogs are. But nonetheless, they do suffer from loneliness and uh, are not happy um, in that sort of situation if they hardly ever see their owners and don't know when they're going to appear. And that's, in fact, when you can get behavioural problems starting. Mm -hmm. so I would say for a first time owner you have to know that this cat is going to be an, an important <laughs> constituent in your life mm -hmm. and be prepared for what that means you have to be around for it for a certain amount of time pretty well every day actually yes and if you can't can't do that I it, it would it is selfish to think well for the time that I am there I quite like to have the cat about you have to think from the other point of view and and try to and if you can't provide a proper routine and companionship for the animal that way round if you really can't you have to look at that situation objectively and be selfless and not take the animal on if you can't really um, give it what it needs that's exactly. what I would say 
or at least yeah at least yeah. hire a service like mine where somebody oh yes but you know i absolutely michelle i can absolutely <laughs> say that but the thing is what i'm saying is that's for when you go when you have to go away exactly as whenever what i'm talking about is a daily Every routine day. yeah yeah, yeah. Yes. I mean, if you can't be that, I mean, yes, if they have to go, if they were going on holiday or if they have a business trip that's going to take them across the Atlantic for a week or two, of course, that's entirely different. Yeah. And that's when a service like yours is so very valuable. But um, if uh, what I'm talking about is on a day to day basis when people are hardly ever around. Yeah. yeah. But what, but when they get home at, at 10 or 11 o'clock at night, they quite like the fact that there's the cat there. Mm. And then they're off at seven or eight o'clock the next morning yeah. um and, and might be out for hours and hours and hours and hours on a day and then at the weekend if they're not working they quite like meeting up with friends and going to parties and all of that mm-hmm. I think that you if that's your lifestyle it's absolutely fine but I, I would say that you need you don't necessarily need to be a, a pet owner unless you've got an you know a partner in life who is not you know to, who has a different kind of lifestyle and is yeah. around more often of course that's that that would be fine you know as long as there's somebody there to actually deal with the routine of the cat's yeah. care but on a day-to-day basis I, I think you really people really have to take this on board and with regard to this cat that I, that I came across the other day it was obvious yeah. that um the cat was not microchip that was the first thing I checked okay. almost uh, almost certainly not spayed in fact she's going to be spayed today oh and had all the hallmarks of a cat that, oh, now we've got to the point where lockdown's lifting. We might actually want to go away. Oh, cat's a bit of a pain now. Mm. So, um, you know, obviously I don't know that that was what happened, but it, it really had all the hallmarks of it. And I fear that this may become more common as we, as we, over the next year, when we actually come out of lockdown, that there are going to be a lot of pets returning to either just being abandoned like that or or being returned to rescue centres. Sadly, um, I think you're right. Yeah. But having said that, I do know I've come across a couple of uh, cases of people with children, couples with children, who've taken on kittens uh, in the last year, uh, presumably as something to keep everyone you know occupied and entertained and something to focus on and it's all worked out absolutely wonderfully they're first-rate owners they they um are very responsible the cats are hugely important in their lives and you know it's all wonderful so i'm not saying i mean i don't want to make it sound as though it's not it's just not happening well it, it is i mean some people are doing it very very responsibly but it's bound to be the case that there will be a lot not and 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 to go back to the to your question i think that sense of what a responsibility it is must be first when you consider taking on an animal mm-hmm. and, and can can your lifestyle really support it exactly now that's a great piece of advice thank you for that James because it I, think I hope that it will give um a lot of people some food for thought um mm. in that <laughs> <their> decision making mm. <laughs> um, but going back to you James um I've mentioned earlier that you are also a published author and that's what yes. you're predominantly focusing on now have yes. like and we've already discussed that you have you know a passion for writing and that's been there since you know childhood but yes. I'd love to know more about your book series the glass water right. quintet Quintet. 
Quintet, sorry. Yes. yes, no, 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 it's fine. Um, and four of them are out, and the last one is yet to be written, so I'm about to launch myself into that. Um, ah. Yes, they're um, a set of linked books. They are not sequels as such, because they take, a, I suppose, a somewhat unusual trajectory. Um, the first one, which is called On the Edge of Wild Water, um, I, start, I started to write as my dissertation when I was doing the MA at the oh. university here. Um, you know, you, I, I, don't, I don't know, people, some people listening will know this, of course, if you do an MA, you usually have to write around about 20,000 words. Yes. So off I launched myself into, I thought, well, let's start a novel you know <laughs> and um I, I i wrote my dissertation and uh, i clearly the story wasn't at an end so that became the first part of the first novel and after i'd submitted my dissertation i just carried on and followed it uh, finished it the following year mm. and um then i i realized that there could it would be interesting because place is so important in my in these books a sense of location and place and atmosphere of place spirit of place um that it would be really interesting to take it further and use the two places that i know best in life which are is the place now where i'm living and the place where i grew up on the fringes of essex and london uh, and somehow link them so that you created this sequence of books and so that's what I've done. And so these two locations are the principal locations in the books, mm. but they don't, uh, they aren't linear. The, uh, on the Edge of Wild Water, the first one takes, I don't actually mention a particular year, but it's sort of in the, 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 the noughties, the two, you know, the 2000s, okay. roughly, roughly round about there. The second book, The Glass Citadel, um, actually goes backwards. You go back to the 1970s and they're not only linked by place but also character but of course characters become younger and then older again as it goes round in a backward circle mm. um it goes back to the 1970s and then back further still to the um, outset of the second world war that was in the third novel the stone forest and then the fourth one which came out last november uh, goes forward again goes forward then again to the 1990s Okay. that's called Eye of the Rushes and then the final novel which is yet to be written The Ice Chandelier that will take place a few years after the first novel so you've come round backward in an anti-clockwise direction yes. um, a full circle um, and then uh, and then some so it goes just past the events of the original novel um, and that's what I've got to do and I've got to tie the whole thing up so that's how it works um, and they ha they are, as I say, very closely um, dependent on on place and the uh, the characters that um, different characters take centre stage in the different novels. But they um, you tend to you know you might get a character, for instance, in Eye of the Rushes, which came out in November. In the last chapter, um, a character appears who was centre stage in the previous novel in the at the beginning of the war when she was a child or, you know, on the verge of, of becoming, uh, entering adulthood around about the age of 13. Okay. Um, and then she appears at the end of I the Rushes. She's mentioned, but she doesn't appear at all until right at the end as, a, you know, a, a lady entering her elderly phase of life. Yeah. Um, and so it, you know, there is this feeling of, of the passing of time and the interrelation between generations and 
the circular nature of time and all of that. So that's important. And they also have quite a strong supernatural slant, as you mentioned at the beginning. Um, I've always been very interested in that, but it's taken quite seriously. This is not, you know, ghosties and ghoulies. It's yes. people's um, experience, um, psychological experience almost of the supernatural. Um, it's haunt haunting of the mind quite often. And so there's always an emotional um, weight to the to the experiences that are depicted in the books, and they're quite you know that's that's entangled. Um, sometimes it's, it's um, there's also some kind of illness involved. Um, uh, other um, or sometimes some kind of emotional dilemma, which somehow links the character to these supernatural experiences. So um, yeah, that's the nature of them. And they, there's always a, a, an element of mystery as well. You know, there's there's something going on um, that you you hopefully, as a reader, want to know um, what the explanation will be by the time you get to the end. So, yes, they're a mixture of psychological thrillers and supernatural, in the classic sense, supernatural. <laughs> Interesting. Do you ever draw on your own experiences, or where do you get your inspiration from for the characters um, and the the scenes? Um, there's some personal experience. For instance, there is there is um, a, a sort of theatrical thread to the novels. One of the one of the characters does become an actor, um, and then in Eye of the Rushes, um, the one the, the most recent one, um, part of the storyline is um, a film being made, of, actually on the of the location of a notorious. Um, atrocity that occurred a hundred years before so you get this um double thread of there's also a strong historical thread to them you get this double thread of the events unfolding in 1894 uh which led to this appalling um death of a, of a young policeman and then the making of a film depicting these events a hundred years later and mm. um, so you know, there is there is a sort of link to that that i'm using that theatrical background uh, to an extent but it's but it's only one of the threads and uh, as I say the um, I've used some family history in it uh, in the beginning of the glass citadel my aunt in the 1960s ran a pub yeah. <laughs> sort of, sort of uh, again on the edges of east London and uh, had some extraordinary experiences there with her her husband, my uncle, who was a who was a ne'er do well, I'm afraid, and um, <laughs> led her a merry dance. And uh, so, um, but with her permission, I mean, sadly, she's no longer here, bless her. But mm -hmm. when it when it was written, I I interviewed her about the experiences of that time, and she knew I was going. And in fact, she did get to read that bit of the book. Oh, um, Yes, so I, I used her experiences in the in in that pub, um, and in the Stone Forest, for instance, the the, the young girl in it um, has a, a significant illness when she's about twelve or thirteen, which is something I don't know a lot of people won't have heard of now. It used to be called um, Saint Vitus Dance. Ah, uh, I feel like I have heard of that. Yes, it's now called Sydenham's Career, which is oh. you know a posher way of. Um, saying the same thing really um it's it's a form of rheumatic fever actually but it affects the nervous system and and and, and the sufferer is unable to control movements and it's very stressful um and alarming not only for the sufferer but for people 
witnessing it. It's yeah. it's very a very strange condition, and can affect the nervous system and can leave you with certain things, such as OCD and that sort of thing. Um, yeah. It's quite an interesting thing. And my mother had that as a child, and so I incorporated that into part part of the Stone Forest. Um, so yeah, and at locations, as I say, the my my father was born and brought up in. Barking in uh, oh, okay. Essex, Essex, East London, yeah. and uh, there's a creek, Barking Creek. Um, he he didn't grow up there. He was in the t- he grew up in the town, but the creek, which is just two miles south on the edge of the Thames, was an extraordinary place in in the 1930s. Um, there were there was quite a lot of heavy industry there, but and there was a little community. There were, t- there were two rows of back to back terraced houses, mm-hmm. where all the a lot of the workers from the factories used to live, and so it was this strange, isolated community, on the edge of the marshes. You know, sandwiched between the marshes and the and the Thames, with all this industry along it, including a huge power station. And there are some very atmospheric photographs which I had to work from. Um, and uh, well, that was all, and also some archived um, information from a lady who'd lived there when she was a child herself, because the houses, of course, are long gone, and the whole thing is, you know, is unrecognisable now. It's completely different. But it was an extraordinary place, and I thought that would be a great place to set the opening of the book. So, yes, yes so yeah, it's a mixture of imagination, as we were talking about at the beginning of the interview, and actual things that may have happened and then are modified by imagination that's the thing you never really use an incident or a person that you've known it literally they become the 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 incident the story the person becomes something else once they're fictionalized Mm -hmm. but of course they can provide wonderful material to get the imagination going um and to create something different Interesting. Have you ever considered using any cats in your book? Oh, yes. No, they do occur. Oh, oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Um, uh, Animals are not, I mean, they're not, the books aren't about animals. Yes, of course. But but they they are a significant presence, actually, I would say. In On the Edge of Wild Water, the first one, there's a cat who was based on the first cat I have, I had. Um, It was sort of you know, a little hot homage to him actually um yeah he was a great cat and he appears in the book um and although you know he's quite significant as a presence mm. um and and even up to the you know the dramatic denouement of the book he's very much there um in the stone forest the third one there and this was actually based on a story that was given to me by neighbors here who are wonderful and they're in their 90s and gave me huge amounts of information about what it was like here at the beginning of the second world war and one of the stories they told me was uh, because they had a couple of um uh, the, the gentleman i'm talking about when he was yeah. a young lad he um uh, he and his family took in two refugees of course from or evacuees i should say from yeah. from london two girls and one of them was actually in a wheelchair when she arrived um, and I think it, it was actually displaced hips that had never righted themselves. And in those days, I'm afraid the awful truth is children like that were just left to get on with it. Yes. And they had this extraordinary dog on the farm who took a liking to this child. And they developed this 
very beneficial relationship and he this dog actually used to encourage the child by you know by means of of her ha- hanging on to him to actually get out of the chair oh amazing and begin to walk and by the time she went home at the end of the war she no longer used the wheelchair i thought that was extraordinary yeah and so i've used that material um in the stone forest and so the dog is quite a significant presence in that one so yeah um, and and the cat the cat in on the edge of wild water of course will appear again in the ice chandelier which is going to be the last one which takes us back to that time again or just a bit bit later so yes i'm preparing to write about in real life the cat was called arthur in the book he has a lovely welsh name which is ridian so um yeah he's going to appear again wow that sounds exciting (laughs) you kindly offered our listeners a free download of two short stories um lillian and the amber walking stick and the first five chapters of on the edge of wild water Yes. Um, you've already I think you've told us a little bit about on the edge of world water yes yes um, and could you tell us a little give us a little synopsis about Lillian and the amber walking stick yes well Lillian again is a great example of how to use um, material imaginatively Lillian is based I, I would say set in the early 1950s and again that's a tribute to my paternal grandmother who was a char lady in the mm. east end and she used to tell me, I loved her, actually, because she had all this fun, you know, wonderfully, not, not lurid, but intriguing stories that she used to tell me when I was a child. So and that's always fascinating to children, isn't it? Yes. And she, she used to tell me tales of various people that she used to work for. And some of some she had a few um, of her employers as a child lady were um, quite well to do Jewish people in the East End. Mm-hmm. And there was... Um, uh, there were a couple of stories regarding this particular lady that always stayed in my mind. Um, And so Lillian uh, is based on, uh, is a fiction, uh, uh, as I say, a reinvention, a fictionalised version of what I remember now from all those years ago being told. The whole thing, of course, is is transmuted by time and imagination. Mm -hmm. But it is is a sort of tribute to my grandmother who worked as a child lady in East End. And and, um, in the story, she um, finds herself becoming entangled with this particular lady whose life uh, ends in tragedy, in fact. and it's written in the first person from from the child lady's point of view. So that's that one. The Amber Walking Stick is much more a product entirely of imagination. That's set in West Wales, and it has a, this one has a supernatural tinge to it as well. It, it involves a widower who um, who is a, who has um, built up a rather smug, self satisfied life in his widowhood. Mm-hmm. But then this begins to unravel when he discovers um, written communications from his dead wife that seem to intrude on his on his life in the present. Oh. And um, the amber walking stick is is well, you know, anyone who reads it will see. But it was actually inspired. The only bit of inspiration I got was once years ago watching an episode of the Antiques Roadshow in which somebody had made a sort of papier-mâché mush of love letters and and as a way of keeping them had actually entombed them in a walking stick wow yes 
I thought that was such an extraordinary yes. idea that I thought at some point this had to be used. Yeah. So that's that is what the amber walking stick is. But except in the story, of course, it assumes rather more alarming <laughs> consequences for this particular gentleman. So that those are the two stories. It's a sort of black comedy. It's yeah. a black com a black comedy with a supernatural um, edge to it. Mm, I like that. I do. Mm. I enjoy that 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 kind of theme of book. Um, yes. Thank you. Yeah. Mm. Um, so now moving on to my favourite part of the show, which is, of course, pets. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit more about your life and journey with pets so far? I, of course, you you mentioned earlier about all of your um, interesting and wild pets that you had as a child. But um, yeah, yes. maybe you could elaborate a little bit more about some of them. About what, what the, then all, all the cats later on? The oh, cats yeah. Yeah, the cats later on. Uh, well, I came I came into cats quite by accident, actually. There was a, a friend of mine um, from drama school who'd um, had had a cat and, and found herself having she having to go away a lot. She was working a lot. And I ended up looking after him and eventually um, taking him on. And it was from that that the interest began to grow. That was the seed, as it were. Mm. And this had started before, for me, before the... Um, the accident that I was telling you about. Yes. But it, but in the wake of that, um, it grew. And I will tell you about this because she was such an extraordinary cat. This, um, this, this, uh, my interest sort of ballooned, as it were, with the advent of this cat. We were sitting, um, having, we had a friend around for, for dinner one Saturday night and I heard something knock at the door, literally knock at the door, the front door. And I, you know, just tap on the, on the, on the wooden panels. Yeah. So I went to the door and there was this small ginger cat sitting there. <laughs> and I, I picked her up and I thought I my I was I really didn't have anything much experience then at all. Yeah. I mean, it, uh, so I, I looked at her and I thought, I think this cat's pregnant. Um, and I thought, well, you know, she looks fairly well fed. What am I to do about this? And of course, I, I didn't take too much notice. And that was it. And then the following morning. My neighbour came down uh, around and said, can you come around? Can you come around? This is cat. I said, it's a ginger cat. She said, yes, yes, yes. And, and she said, it, oh, it was sleeping all night in my in our shed. And of course, then I realised that this cat had been abandoned. Uh, she was, a, you know, an abandoned, disgraced mother. She was heavily pregnant. Oh. And um, I even I could see with my untutored eye then that this was pregnancy. I, I contacted a local um rescue agency and a lady came around and said oh no no because it was ginger and as you may well know most ginger cats yes. are male but 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 not all of them and she looked at this cat and said oh it's a ginger it's a ginger tom a new to tom with worms and I thought no I don't think so mm. and so off she went and 10 days later this dear cat who became Maisie um gave birth um to four kittens wow. and there was a fabulous book on the market called the book of the cat in those days and it's such a shame it's gone out of print because nothing I've seen since compares to it and fortunately it had a whole thing about you know delivering if you had to act as midwife and I you know it really was a case of called the midwife because <laughs> she st she went into labor sort of in the early evening and it went on till past midnight oh wow and because she was so young I think she um uh, you know, it, this is not uncommon in in cats. You know, when they're very young, I mean, she was under well under a year herself, so um, she was not really even adult. And the first two were all right, and then after that, she began to tire and, and gave up. And so, thank God, I'd read this um, um, chapter in the book 
Um, and I had all my little instruments ready. And I actually, for the, for the last two, I had to actually cut the cords. Wow. And the final one, I even had to pull out because it, it, he, it was a, that one was a male and got stuck halfway and she just couldn't do anymore. Yeah, yeah. Poor little mite. She just could not. She was physically so exhausted. She yeah. gave up. And so this cat was just, this kitten was just lodged <laughs> half in and half out. So I had to pull that one out and again, cut the cord and rub them. And in the end, I had to go to bed thinking, well, I, you know, are they all going to survive? But blow me down, they did. Amazing. And, uh, Yes, and we um, we found homes for kittens, and we kept Maisie, and she came with us to Wales, and she was an extraordinary character. Oh. Um, yeah, so um, and uh, was instrumental when we took on a, another wonderful cat here called Rufus, who was a, a, an unmuted Tom that turned up here in an emaciated state, and and wouldn't come near us for a lot quite a long time. He would come to be fed, and then would just disappear again except one fateful morning when he appeared and lingered. And I thought, there's something going on here. He's he's too tired to keep going away and coming back. He's he's hovering, but he wouldn't actually let us get near him. He was out on the patio and I would put food down and he'd eat it and then back away. You know, all this nonsense was going on. And darling Maisie, in the end, had clearly got complete, was obviously monitoring this from inside the house mm. and becoming more and more exasperated because it was taking up far too much of our attention. And suddenly there was this clatter of the cat flap and out she came almost, you know, teetering on high heels, as it were, and um, marched up to this cat, put her nose against his and, and, and in a very imperious voice, literally went <laughs> and then turned, turned around and, you know, swept back into the house. Um, he, he came a bit nearer, still wouldn't, you know, she did the whole thing again. She came out, clatter, 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 teeter, teeter nose against his even more imperious now and demanding and yeah. it was honestly there was a balloon coming out of her head saying oh for god's sake can you decide what you're doing because <laughs> because, because this is really boring now and you're taking up far too much of their time when they should be concentrating oh, on me and she, she uh, the second time she did it i was standing when she then flounced off again I, I was standing about a meter from this cat and i thought well i could reach out and just pick him up mm. um, um and i did and i just oh. picked him up and I panicked a bit then because I thought it was it was a very warm early summer and I just had a T-shirt on and I thought he's going to struggle in a minute and I'm going to be clawed to bits. And I, so I said, go, go and get a carrier quickly. But there was no need. Once he decided, whatever she said to him, whatever she said to him, and I don't mean that at all, um, you know, facetiously, she clearly said something to him. It changed his mind. And he just wow. sat in my he just sat in my arms. We were able to put him in a carrier and, he, you know, he went to the vet and was checked and all the rest of it. And he was with us for many, many years. He was a wonderful cat. So Maisie and the idea that cats do not speak to one another um, was completely went out the window that day. Exactly. Yes. So and we've had many cats and we have three at the moment. Okay. Another, another ginger male called Rory, a very um, glamorous, long haired tortoiseshell called Gertie. <laughs> Uh, and a little um, black and white long-haired sprite oh. of, a, of a cat called, uh, well, her full name is Esmeralda, but she's usually known as Esme. And she, because we have a lovely, you know, garden, there's a little wood and uh, uh, over the other side of the stream and so on. And she um, loves inhabiting that wood, although she's now 12, I think. So she's beginning to appreciate the comforts of home a bit yeah. more. But she was very much an outdoor girl. Okay. So those are our three. <laughs>
beautiful thank you so much for sharing those stories I think you could even write a, a book about them it's fantastic. yes well if I, I if I did ever one I, I probably probably would take the form of a memoir about cats yes. actually, uh, yeah. because I mean we've known so many one way or the other mm-hmm. over the years um but that that I had to talk about Maisie because those incidents were so extraordinary and um yeah they can be utterly extraordinary can't they yeah. so but I yes I might well and I think it will be a, a memoir <laughs> that would be amazing yeah I'd yes. love to hear about that when you do <laughs> um I mean I know it's a no-brainer but have you always had this connection and have they have cats aided your own well-being I guess maybe during the time that you had that accident maybe cats- yes that's yeah. exactly what came into my mind as you were yeah. asking that question, because the cat that I mentioned, the first cat that we had, who whose fictional form appears in the books, uh, he was a wonderful cat. He was terribly empathetic. Oh. And he knew always if somebody, if you weren't happy or, you know, there was some sort of, and he would come and he would just rest against you. Oh. Or if you were lying down, he would come and sometimes just sit on your chest. <laughs> and um, he would... That's all he would do, but it would it was immensely it was really quite moving actually yeah. when he would do it, and he he was a wonderful cat, so so sensitive and empathetic, and I would say certainly at that time, yes, when that was a very difficult time, it was the cats that made a big difference. Mm. Um, uh, yes, and certainly with the coming of the pregnant Maisie and her kittens, you know that yes. made that was very engrossing at the time. <laughs> uh, yeah no they do they do they've made a, a big difference I would say of course well thank you so much for talking to me James honestly I've just had the best time talking oh, to well, you I, love listening I, to you talk it's been amazing I know this is going to be such a great um podcast and so many people are going to enjoy listening um thank back you. To you I've had a great time I really have actually so I'm um, very grateful to you for inviting me on it's been it's been lovely to have a chat thank you no worries. Um, lastly, if our listeners want to find out more about you, your accounts online, where we can buy your books, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes. Well, um, the best place to go to, actually, for, if you just want to have a look at what my, you know, have a look at the, the books and yes. uh, so on, is my website. Okay. All, all one word, jamesmorganjones.co.uk. And you will see on every page, there's a little panel. If you want to, you can subscribe to an occasional newsletter and you can also get access to the, the texts that you were talking about earlier for okay. free. Yeah, yeah. Um, my books are available from, if you look up James Morgan Jones on Amazon, you will find them all. They are available from Waterstones. You'll have to order them from Waterstones, um, almost certainly. Okay, but they can do that in a week. Um, um, people I know people have ordered them for Waterstones, and they come in about a week. So you know all the all the main and other platforms as well. If you're into e versions rather than um, uh, yes. the like hard co- hard copy, yes, yeah. they're on kin- Kindle or or anything on your preferred device. Really, okay. I think you will, you will find them usually available. So they they are pretty available. Perfect. Thank you. Is there any is there any other websites or, or social media handles uh yes well i do um james morgan uh, you you'll find me on um facebook it's okay. at at james morgan jones author you will find me on facebook and um on twitter uh, it's, it's because it wouldn't take my entire name so this is why it's slightly awkward it's twitter it's at james morgan john just j-o-n okay yes one 
James uh, James Morgan John one is my Twitter account. Okay, so you'll find me there as well. Thank you. I'll make sure to put those um, links into the show notes. Um, okay, for our listeners. But thank right. you once again. It's been um, wonderful speaking to you, James, and I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you, and it's been absolutely my pleasure. Thank, thank you very much. You. Okay. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. We have some amazing guests on the show who share such invaluable advice, stories and inspiration. Can you do me a favour? If you like this podcast, please could you rate, review and subscribe. This will help us reach people who can benefit from listening. Another way you could help is if you could tell a friend who you think might enjoy this podcast too. See you next week. Goodbye.